Good morning. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Lord willing, we will finish up Mark's survey of the Lord's parables in this third look at the marks of fruitful hearing. Mark 4, 26 to 34. All right, so as, we've, as, as we have examined over the last several weeks, Mark has lumped Jesus' parables together. He, he has put them all together in one scene, as it were. It, all these parables being given, they are in front of, they are being given in front of one backdrop. If you look at chapter 4, verse 2, Mark says, he was teaching them many things and parables, and he was saying to them in his teaching. In 4, 9, and he was saying, verse 21, and he was saying to them, verse 24, and he was saying to them, and again in verse 26, again in 30, again in 33, and twice in 34, we are told Jesus was saying these things, and he was teaching. And and I have to apologize because I'm going to geek out a little bit in our, in our sermon today by uh, bringing up some of the details in, in the Greek. But all those verbs that I just gave you, Mark wrote them in the what's called the imperfect tense. And what he does when he uses that tense is he's describing an ongoing action. It was something that was, that was going on. It was going on continuously. It was interrupted until the present time. And it may be going on still. It may have stopped. But it, but it was going on. It was happening over and over and over again, continuous. So in all likelihood, what we have read in probably a very short amount of time in chapter 4, what, what takes you maybe a minute to read was occurring over the course of hours, days, perhaps even weeks or months. This is a survey of Jesus' parables by Mark. We'll have one or two more parables, I think, in chapter 11 or 12. But as far as Mark's gospel is concerned, this is, chapter 4, is the chunk of Jesus' teaching in parables. And so this short, this short bit is reflective of a much larger body of teaching. And so it's, I think it's been appropriate for us to, again, something that could be read very shortly, it's been appropriate for us to look at it piecemeal and go with it slowly. Mark, Mark likes to be fast. He, he has a, an impatient mind. He's writing to a Roman audience. He's, he's impatient, impulsive, impetuous. He's got to get to the action. But it's good for us to slow down just a little bit. Now, as I've said, this is Jesus' parables that we see in verse 11 and 12 that the purpose of the parables was twofold. The parables were to obscure truth and light for some and to reveal it to others. The parables obscure God's truth and the light of the gospel from those who don't have the, the heart to believe and from those who do not have ears to hear. They conceal, but at the same time, they reveal that same truth, same light to those who are able to hear it. 
What's the difference between the two groups? What is the dividing line? What is the division marker? The difference lies in the nature and the condition of the heart of the hearer. Those who have the heart to hear Jesus, hear Jesus. They hear him, they believe him, and they bear the fruit of his word. Beginning in verse 21, Jesus then began to explain what this, we can say, fruitful hearing looks like. What, what, What is it? What does it look like? What does it do in the life of a disciple, of a, of a believer, of a follower of Jesus. And he began giving us these qualities that mark fruitful hearing. The first mark, the first quality in verses 21 to 22 was obedient witnessing. Those who have received gospel light are commissioned to go out and to share it. This was true of the 12 disciples who became the 12 apostles. This is true of every disciple of Jesus who has lived and been called up until this day. And nothing will change about that. That was the first mark. The second mark in verse 23 to 25, as seen in the parable of the measure, fruitful hearing is marked by expectant working. What you put in reflects what you get back. How you sow influences or is reflective of how you will reap. When we examined that parable, we saw that true disciples don't equate their call to follow Jesus and to share his gospel. We, they don't equate that responsibility with the way that we might equate a minimum wage job. I, I can't use the illustration of McDonald's anymore because 10 years ago, working at McDonald's w- wouldn't have impressed anybody. You know, the, the whole would you like fries with that. But, I mean, have you, have you been to a McDonald's lately? They, they, it's pretty nice. The uniforms are pretty nice. The, the, the packages and the, well, I can't use McDonald's anymore. But the, true disciples don't have a, would you like, fries with that mentality about sharing the gospel. Fruitful hearing realizes we are dealing with things of eternal significance. We are dealing with souls of people who will exist in one realm or the other. They will exist forever. There's a sobriety about this. And faithful hearing thus expects God to honor and to bless our evangelistic efforts. We understand not everybody will respond. Perhaps not even many will respond. But some will. Some will respond, and fruitful hearing works expecting God to save those whom he has called. Whereas those who sit on the gospel and do nothing with it will certainly see nothing come from it. Fruitful hearing works expecting, expectantly knowing that God does his part to bless his gospel. The third mark. A fruitful hearing is that it waits dependently. Fruitful hearing, as verses 26 to 29 tells us, that fruitful hearing waits dependently. Let's see what the text, what Jesus says, verse 26. And he was saying, "The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he goes to bed at night, and he gets up by day." 
and the seed sprouts and grows. How, he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now this parable, I don't know whether to call it the parable of the sleeping farmer. Uh, most people call it the parable of the, uh, of the growing seed. But this parable is unique to Mark. And in it, Jesus has returned to using the image of the seed. He, re- he returns to using an image and an experience and a phenomena that everybody would have been familiar with. And that was the nature of... Uh, in the manner of his parables, using basic earthly truths to teach profound heavenly truths. And what is the basic earthly truth in this parable? Well, what do you think it is? What, what, what is the easily observable truth about the seed? It grows by itself. It grows automatically. Now, remember, this was an agrarian society. Virtually everybody themselves was a farmer or they knew a farmer. And at the very least, there were farms everywhere and they were surrounded by farms. And so you could see farming. You could see fields and crops and things growing. You could see the men casting seed. You can see the seed taking root and sprouting and growing. And you can see all that happening when the farmer is not out there doing his work. Fields and crops were everywhere. They, they weren't like, uh, I, I, w- w- in my day job, we, we take some of our kids and we go walking around the community and we see that some people have little crops for, pro- it looks like projects. People didn't have fields, people didn't have project fields back then. They were everywhere. They were means of food and survival. And so everybody knew and conceived for themselves that seeds grew by themselves. And you can, you can see this for yourself. You can go home and you can go to YouTube.com and just type in uh, time-lapsed seed growing. And you can see this seed placed on top of the soil and what takes seconds, reflecting what, what happens over hours and days, the, the little tendril shoots down. looks like a little worm at first. It's kind of disgusting. But a little little root shoots down. And after a couple days, the little itty-bitty tiny stalk shoots up. And after a couple more days, little, little, little tiny leaves, little branches come out and little leaves come off that branches. All, all by itself. What the farmer has to wait days to see, you, you can see in a matter of moments. But he has to wait days. And notice verse 27. After he's cast his seed upon the soil, what does he do? Verse 27. He goes to bed. I like that. I like that a lot. This is competing for one of my favorite parables. He goes to bed. Now, now again, th- this is where I'm going to geek out just a little bit. Uh, it, it, this, this doesn't jump out in the English, but when uh, in verse 26 where Jesus says that the farmer casts his seed... Casts sounds like it, like it's an ongoing, it's a present tense thing. It's it's what uh, grammarians call the aorist tense. 
It is something that happened in the past, and we don't care when it began. We don't care when it ended. We don't care how long it took. We don't care about any detail about the action. All we care about is that it is done. It happened, and and you're moving on. That's what's called the aorist tense, and the farmer casting his seed is used in that past tense, simply completed action description of the, of, of, the, of the sowing. Then, after he's done that, the sowing is done, the, the, the bag's empty, the time to clock out and go home. You don't, you're not doing any more work. It's done, completed, finished. Then he goes to bed and he gets up, and while he is doing that, well, he, he, uh, his, his going to bed and his getting up is in the present tense, continuous, repeated, uninterrupted, again, and again, and again. What does, he, what does he do after he goes to bed? Gets up. Guess what he does after he goes to, guess what he, guess what he does after he gets up? Goes back to bed. Guess what he does after he goes to bed? Gets up. Guess what he does the next day? So it's just, he, it's just continually going to sleep, getting up, going to sleep, getting up, and we might think, hey, this is a, what a slouch of a farmer. Does one day's worth of work, and then he, he's a couch potato for a week. No, he, the farmer would obviously have moved on to something else, but for sake of emphasis, for, 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 for the purpose and for the, for the argument of the parable, for emphasis, Jesus is saying he, wherever he is, he is not with the seed. He's not working on the seed anymore. And notice, while he is going to bed and while he is getting up, in the present tense, over and over and over, what does verse 27 say about the action of the seed? The farmer is away, he's in bed, and he's going to bed getting up. What does the seed do? It sprouts and grows. Present tense, ongoing, continuous, over and over, uninterrupted. While the farmer is away doing something else, writing a love letter to Mrs. Farmer. The seed is sprouting, and it is growing by itself. It, uh, the word is automate, automatically, under its own power, by the power and ability that is inherent within the seed, by the nature of what it is and by the nature of what it does, the seed sprouts and grows. And the farmer counts on that. The farmer is dependent on this horticultural phenomena. He's banking on the seed to grow by itself. He's dependent upon that, that if he has good seed and he casts it and he sows it on good soil, he is expecting it to grow on its own. He's, he's, he's expecting it to grow without him, without his input, without his assistance. Why is he so dependent upon, upon this phenomena? It's his livelihood. He, he, when he harvests it, he's either, going to, he's either going to sell it, or more importantly, it's, he's going to make dinner with it. I told you this is my favorite parable. It, it, he is dependent upon the seed growing so that he can harvest it. It, it, it is his livelihood. It, 
and, and if the seed did need him, you can bet he would be there right alongside it, helping it sprout, training, training it, encouraging it, coaching it, cheering it, encouraging it. You can do it, buddy. You could say he'd be rooting for it. And they left, and they said they liked punts. The seed does not need the presence of the farmer. As far as the seed is concerned, the farmer is obsolete during its germination. The farmer has an insignificant role, mainly in this parable. He, he has something to do in the beginning. He, he's cast the seed, and he's there at the end because he harvests. But it, as, far as, as far as the body of the parable, the farmer is doing absolutely nothing. The seed is doing everything all by itself, all under its own power. The farmer does absolutely nothing. Not only because the seed successfully grows automatically, grows by itself, because what, what, is, what, what does verse 27 tell us? If the farmer even wanted to do something, even if he felt he was obligated or, or should really help that little sprout, sproutling out, what does verse twenty? What does the last bit of verse twenty-seven tell us? Would he know what to do? Would he would he know how to help, how to coach, how to encourage this little sapling? Would could he help it? Would he know what to do to help this little green thing grow into a big mighty bush? No, he doesn't know what to do. This fact. This mystery, this marvel of how seeds grow, it still confounds gardeners and horticulturalists, people who get dirty and deal with seeds and things growing. They're still amazed. They still marvel at how this works today. And it's absolutely astonishing that a seed, this little thing, this little thing that it doesn't talk, it doesn't move, it doesn't have an opinion, it doesn't breathe, it doesn't drink, it doesn't eat, it doesn't give off any vibes. For, for all tense and purposes, you would think it was a dead thing. You could seal it in a bag and put it in the fridge or put it in a box for 100 years, and then you could take it out, throw it on the ground, and if the soil is good, it'll still grow. It is absolutely amazing. You put that thing down on the ground and it, what appears to be dead sprouts to life all by itself. It comes to life all by itself. That is the earthly truth of the parable. The seed grows by itself. Now, what is the heavenly truth that it points to? What is the self-growing seed that we see with our physical eyes point to that we must believe in our hearts about the kingdom of God. When the seed of the gospel is sown on good soil of receptive hearts, here it is. Here's the spiritual truth. Spiritual, the spiritual sprouting, the spiritual growing happens outside of the power, outside of the influence, independent of the evangelist. It happens outside of uh, outside the assistance of the Christian who sowed the seed. The gospel produces its growth and fruit because of its inherent power, because of the ability that it itself has 
to create life. It has the power to do just that. If a heart has been prepared by God to receive the gospel, then the provision of that gospel ensures and guarantees a sprouting and a growing and a bearing of fruit. Because that is what it does. That is what it does. And it doesn't need your help. Nor does it need my help. The gospel is that powerful. What we call the second birth, what we call being born again, being made a new creation, being regenerated, remade. This is the work whereby the Spirit of God imbues life to the soul and he quickens the soul to believe in Jesus Christ and to love God, things which which we in ourself and our flesh are not capable of doing. If we can't do those things, how could we expect to foster and encourage others to do what we ourselves could not do? The farmer does not imbue, the farmer does not impart or give or produce life to his crops. Neither does the Christian do the same to those in his mission field. He is utterly dependent upon the inherent nature and the power of the gospel. The Christian is utterly dependent upon the power and nature of the seed of the word of God in his evangelism. The sphere of its power of the gospel, the sphere of the souls of men, what 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 soil they represent, those are spheres outside of our influence. I can't change your heart. You can't change another fellow's heart. We are dependent upon God to work in the soul and to work through his gospel. We are dependent on him. The Christian is dependent on God to do the work of calling sinners to salvation. And that is a work, beloved, that is a work he has promised to do. And that is a work that he has shown himself time and time and time again faithful to accomplish. He has promised to do it. He has shown himself faithful to do it. Our dependency, our our work as Christians, our work in evangelism is utterly dependent on God. Now, this is humbling, but it's also freeing. It's humbling and freeing. It's humbling because some treat soul winning, some treat their evangelism like war pilots or or tank drivers would treat their kills and they put notches, they put marks on on the side of their craft. They they lead someone to Christ, they, they get someone to say a prayer, And they say, yes, another one. I'm awesome. How wonderful I am in the kingdom of God. How important I am. How impressive I am. Now, boasting of the flesh there. Friends, the work of evangelism has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your charm, 
It has nothing to do with your charisma. It has nothing to do with how swell and good and impressive and relevant you might make Jesus out to be to sinners who are hostile to him. It has nothing to do with you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, speaking of of him as a man and, and his gospel workers, his partners in the mission field, as those who have the gospel, he calls them jars of clay or earthen pots that have this treasure entrusted to them. It was a most humble piece of equipment that you would use to move things around that you would not want to touch with your hands. In his flesh, Paul likens himself to that dirty clay pot, that jar of clay which has a precious, precious treasure inside. That's what we have with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trying to bring our own efforts, trying to win people over to Christ through our, through our good works, through our charm, through our charisma. It's like trying to impress someone with a dirty piece of clay. It's not going to happen. So it's humbling because it's never about us, never dependent upon our ability. It's humbling to remember that we depend upon God, but it's also freeing. It's humbling, but it is also freeing because you could have no charm. You you could realize that you have no wit, no style, no strategy. You could not be gifted as an evangelist. You could have poor speech. You could have a poor reputation. You could have a disfigurement. You could have physical abnormalities. You could be unimpressive. You could be even repulsive to those that look at you. You could be all that. You could be more. You could be worse. But beloved, you can still, with the gospel of Christ, you could still, with all that baggage, still be used to bring a soul to Jesus, to share Christ with him and give him the gospel. And when that happens, if the Spirit has done a work in that person's heart and you give him the gospel, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you are. Because it's not about you. It's not about your ability. It is and always has been and always will be about God and his power and his promise to save souls. Amen? It's humbling because you could be the best communicator. You could you could be legitimately incredible. You could be gifted. You could have charm and zeal and drive. You could have all the programs that do all the things. But without the power of God in the gospel and in regeneration of the soul, your efforts will fail 100% of the time guaranteed. So it's humbling. But it is also freeing. Because when you realize that it's not about you, it's because of God and because of what he does. It is is emboldening. It is strengthening. It is freeing and encouraging because we realize it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to be rejected because it was never up to our ability. It was never dependent on our performance to convince someone to repent and believe in the first place. It's humbling, but it is utterly, utterly freeing to remember and to be grounded in the fact that conversion is a work of God and is not dependent upon anyone's ability to convince anybody of anything. Conversion is a work of God 
when this happens, when sinners are brought to repentance, when they are brought to a place of saving faith, we see the successful harvest God has achieved. And just like that farmer who in verse, was it 29, when the crop permits, when we see the harvest, we, just as the farther, uh, farmer immediately reaps his crops at the harvest so that he can enjoy them, we immediately, upon seeing lost people saved, we immediately begin to rejoice with them. We rejoice when we see lost people found, do we not? Have you had a loved one? Have you had a coworker? Have you had a family member? Have you had a friend who was lost and you saw them come to Christ and you saw the change in them? You saw God prove through their works and through their faith that they were the good soil. They weren't the shallow soil. They weren't the thorny soil. They were the good soil. And you see the fruit. Does, not, does that not bring joy to you knowing that that fellowship you have with them will be enjoyed forever? Doesn't that not lift your spirits in the way that all the money and all the pleasures of earthly life could not accomplish? Knowing that something of eternal significance, knowing that something that the devil and all the powers of the world cannot take away. It thrills to the soul. It brings joy to see lost people found, to see the alienated accepted, to see the, 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 those who are enemies with God, to see them reconciled, to see the abandoned adopted, to see the sinner forgiven, to see the dead raised to new life. That is exciting and it is joyful. And all those joys, all those truths and realities, we will enjoy for all eternity. Especially as we, as we get to learn and discover how it is that God was accomplishing them. We'll have all eternity to dig into that and to see the richness of his mercy and grace. But even then, even, even now, we get to see, as we see that harvest, as we get to see that crop and the fruit of our evangelistic efforts, we get to rejoice now. So fruitful hearing works dependently. It works dependently on God to fulfill his promise to create new life and bring sinners to salvation. Fruitful hearing works dependently. That was the third mark. The fourth and final mark of fruitful hearing of those who are the Lord's disciples is that they walk confidently. Fruitful hearing walks confidently. This is the last parable, verses 30 to 34. Now where the, the parable of, of the, the growing seed looks at the, the, the middle, the interim stage of the seed's growth, this parable is looking at the end game. This, this, the parable of the mustard seed is looking at the final product, the, the, the end. Read verses 30 to 32. And he said... How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, 
it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. This is the fourth and final mark of true disciples. Those who truly hear Jesus, those who who have ears to hear and hearts to believe and to follow Christ, the fourth mark is that they are confident. Their walk is in confidence. Their life is lived out in confidence. Their evangelism is executed in confidence. Now with this final parable, Jesus assures his disciples that the enterprise before them will not end like it started. It, this, this gospel enterprise, this gospel mission, it's not going to conclude as it began, and it's not, going, it's not going to conclude on the same level that it was currently at the present time. Well, what do I mean by that? The fully grown mustard bush in the parable is the kingdom of God as it will be in its fullest manifestation. The mustard's The mustard bush at the end of the parable is what the kingdom of God will be at the end of the ages. It will, the kingdom, not the bush, will have incredible awe. It will be utterly amazing. It will be full of immeasurable glory. God himself will be there. We are told that we will see his face. Everything will be as it should be. There will be no poor, there will be no death, there will be no disease, there will be no illness, there will be no weakness, there will be no hunger, there will be no pain or suffering or sin. Indeed, everything will be as it ought to be. There will be true peace, a peace that hasn't been since the beginning of Genesis 3 and I would even say the peace we'll have will surpass what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 describes. We will have complete harmony. We will have peace. And we will see and we will revel. We will glory in our riches in Christ. And we will utterly enjoy every second for the rest of eternity. I, I don't, how, how do I express that? in a way that, that does justice to what it will actually be. I don't know how. I just accept it by faith that it will be stupendous, more than words can describe. That is what the kingdom of God will be like. That is what we will experience in the kingdom in the final state. And it is unlike, the development of that kingdom's glory is unlike the development of normal kingdoms. Normal kingdoms, normal empires usually begin with a revolt and a bang, only to later crumble into decay and fall into obscurity with a whimper. Yet it is, it is in that humble state, it is, in that, it is with that kind of a whimper, it is with that state of low reputation and recognition that the kingdom of God began. Think about it. It began with a baby allegedly or rumored to have been born out of wedlock 
the son of a lowly carpenter out of Nazareth of all places. I, I, I still don't know which area around here fits this description, but where I'm come from, uh, it was Oakland. It's the place, you know, what, what good comes out of Oakland? What? Uh, what? Bless you. Um, so, moving on. Sheepish. So, go back to Nazareth. What good comes out of Nazareth? This mild, meager beginning of the gospel, as seen in Jesus' origin, as, as seen and it intensifies. Can meagerness intensify? Uh, his, his lack of impressiveness becomes even more solidified as he's rejected by his people, as he's executed a criminal's death, and then his gospel enterprise is then handed over and entrusted to a band of disciples who themselves aren't anything to write home about. They're, they're blue-collar nobodies. They're, they are themselves unimpressive. And remarkably, when you read the gospels, time and time again, they are slow to believe. They are dull of hearing now they they can't they can hear what the crowds at large can't but they're still slow and dull and they're sinful that unimpressiveness the state of unimpressiveness that reflects the gospel movement at that point the beginning of the church that is the kingdom of god in mustard seed form and for a short while especially as, especially for the disciples, as more and more and more people begin to pack up and leave and go back home, and as, as public opinion begins to turn against Jesus, I could imagine it would be quite hard to expect much good to come out of this enterprise. It would be quite hard to hope for big things down the road from Team Jesus. The low expectations and the the, obs- the uh, absurdity of it all, the the scandal of Jesus, the unimpressiveness of Jesus, is the kingdom of God when it is yet the size of a mustard seed. Not impressive to look at. The mustard seed itself, uh, it, it was about uh, the size or even smaller than a, a quinoa. Uh, is it? It's not. A, is it a seed, or is it a? Is it a grain? Okay. It, 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 it it's it's roughly one to one and a half millimeters wide. It is a tiny seed, it, and it's not. And I, I've heard people go, "Oh, the silly Bible saying that the mustard seed is the smallest seed. The orchid seed is by far smaller." Oh, I've just proven that the Bible is full of errors. It, well, the, the, no, the mustard seed is not the smallest seed in the world, but very much likely it was the smallest seed that the Jews would have been familiar with. And what is certain is that it is the smallest seed that the Jews would have used for sowing and harvesting. It is the smallest seed that the Jews, that any, any sane person would have used to have gone out and sown to reap anything. And judging from its size, remember, it's, 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 I mean, it's the size of a grain of sand. It is this tiny little thing. 
I don't I have no idea how they how they um, collected or harvested the seeds, but uh, judging from outer appearances, you would not expect anything impressive. You would not expect anything big or grand or amazing or significant. You would not expect a lot to come from this little itty bitty seed because usually big things produce big things. Little things produce little things. So you wouldn't expect anything to come from this tiniest of sown seeds and yet the mustard bush could grow to be around six feet wide and anywhere from 10 to 15 feet tall. So we're not sure if it was a tree. It was probably a large bush or a large shrub. But it would go on to produce a vessel large enough to produce thousands and thousands and thousands of its seeds. The disciples needed to know this truth about the kingdom of God. They needed to be reminded about this quality, this characteristic of the kingdom, that it itself has the power to grow so that they would remain confident. They needed to know that the kingdom of God would grow so they could remain confident. This parable is telling them that it's that the present state of the kingdom does not reflect its final state. And they needed to know that because of the dark days ahead. Again, as people were leaving, as people would mock them, as they would have to give up friends and family. Do you remember what the cost of discipleship is? Jesus himself said, if anyone wants to follow me and be my disciple, he must what? Deny himself, take up his cross, follow him. But when you consider the grandness, when you consider the final product, whatever price you may pay here and now, it will be worth it. Amen? Now at their lowest point, which was uh, the, the period between Jesus' arrest and death leading up to the resurrection, we are told that the number of disciples, you, you could say this is the roll call of the, of the earliest church, the number of disciples were the 11, the, you know, the 12 minus Judas. You had a handful of women, uh, most of them named Mary. Uh, you had a handful of secret disciples, such as uh, Nicodemus um, and um, Simon of Cyrene. And we are told that there were 120 in Jerusalem, 500 throughout the whole land of Galilee. So at the, at the earliest stage, the kingdom is about 750 people. That is, not, that is pittance compared to the massive throngs that have been swarming Jesus in the beginnings of the Gospels. Remember, he, there are so many people smothering him, can't, uh, trying to get close to him. And they can't get close enough, and they, they are smothering to the point that he can't even eat a meal often. That is a far cry. 750 people, give or take, is a far cry from those thronging masses. And so the church would, for a time, be that small, unimpressive size of a mustard seed. But it would, and it did, 
sprout and grow just as Jesus said it would. Did it not? We just read uh, uh, a couple a couple weeks after I think it was I think it was 49 days or with, within a month or two of the res, of the ascension in in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Peter, the 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 apostle with the foot shaped mouth, gets up to preach. And 3,000 people were saved that day and added to the church because of his preaching. And we see a pattern like that as the church expands and as the gospel goes out. And since that time, millions of people, millions of people have been added to the kingdom. God has indeed been faithful to his promise to uphold his church, and he continues to this day, and he will continue until Christ returns to add people until the very last soul that he has appointed to eternal life repents and believes and is placed in that blessed ark of Jesus Christ. God has promised not to lose a single soul. Each one will be masterfully placed as they come to the living stone. They become living stones, as 1 Peter 2, 5 says, and they are placed, they are masterfully placed into the edifice of the spiritual house, the temple of God. And not one, soul, not one stone, not one soul, not one person will be missed or skipped or lost or looked over. God is a very good God at saving his people. So his people are marked with confidence. We have a God that we can be confident in. Amen? Now notice... Notice in verse 32 that the mustard seed grows. When it, when it is sown, it grows up. It becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Now, some see this as saying that the kingdom's going to, you know, uh, Jesus had false disciples. He had flaky disciples at, at the beginning. And then many of them left, but the church is going to grow large enough, the kingdom is going to grow large enough that, again, it will attract some false disciples and false teachers because the birds, you know, if you remember back at the first parable, the birds are, are uh, the devil. They're, they are those who are antagonistic to the gospel. And they, the, the, the seed is a, has grown a little bit, and they can't quite swallow the seed anymore because it's a massive bush. And so the, the, the least that they can do is sit in its shade. I don't prefer that interpretation because the birds here aren't portrayed uh, as anything antagonizing the bush. It, Jesus doesn't say that the birds are going after the seeds that the bush itself is now producing. The birds are merely resting. And twice we're told in the Old Testament, one in Daniel 4, one in Jeremiah 31, we are, told, we are given this image of a tree that has grown so large and the branches have shot out and they are of such length and they are of such a girth that birds from all over the land are able to fly over and perch on it and rest in its shade. Daniel 4, speaking of Babylon, Jeremiah 31 Speaking of Assyria, and this image is, is used of these, of these real kingdoms that had grown so large that they, they uh, were able to provide uh, a sense of um, or the, the reality of stability and protection for, those, for her, their neighboring kingdoms that they had subjugated. 
and the, the, so the tree providing a place for birds to perch is, is, is the image or reflective of these nations able to bless other nations. But I would remind you that both Babylon and Assyria have had their day, and last I checked, they have faded and have, and have fallen away into obscurity. They are gone. But you know what's different about the kingdom of God? It continues to grow. It continues to grow. It continues to expand, and it will not be stopped. And that's something I have to remind myself every day in, in light of my vocation. I'm surrounded by people who, have nothing, who, who, who have, want nothing to do with the kingdom of God. And in my walk, I, I can easily be discouraged and, and just feel like I'm surrounded by, by humanistic, paganistic worldview. And I have to remind myself, the world can throw itself, the nations can rage. It's not going to stop the kingdom of God. And so we can be confident in the kingdom because of who our king is. Amen? Fruitful hearing produces confidence in those who hear and follow Jesus. Well, as Mark Mark has, has, has given us his last parable, at least in this survey, and he says, with many such parables, verse 33, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it, and he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. And this is, this is uh, saying again what we've already looked at. The majority of people do not have ears to hear Jesus. But those whom he has called, those who are remaining with him, he himself, look, he himself is explaining everything to them, and the Lord will be there to teach us. Amen? All right, let's pray.